being okay with the fact that I have type 1 diabetes and just sitting with that. You know, I, I think I I got diagnosed fairly recently. I think in eight days, actually, it'll be my five-year kind of diversary. That's what we call it, the the anniversary of your diagnosis. I was diagnosed in 2014, my senior year of college. And I think something that I experienced was just that people wanted an explanation all the time. And there's just this shame cycle that comes with that expectation because people want you to explain why you got sick. And that's not something that I can give anyone. I can't even give myself that answer because that answer does not exist. That was Kirby. And you're listening to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, episode 159. Welcome to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette. That's me, the podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human. We'll be diving into the full episode in a few minutes, but before that, I have three quick things that I want to share with you. The first is the promise that my guests and I are committed to one simple but powerful thing, telling the truth about our lives. That's it. No one's here to sell you anything. No one's trying to get you to fix yourself or your life. You're great, and we're all just doing the best we can. That's what I believe. The next thing I want to share is a reminder that this is definitely an adult podcast covering adult subjects, often using adult language, and we talk about things like work, love, sex, money, addiction, friendship, racism, body image, mental health, grief, fear, courage, change, and pretty much everything in between. My personal hope is that these conversations make you feel less alone, while also challenging you to consider a new perspective from someone whose lived experiences might be different from your own. I think that's super important. And then lastly, the last thing that I want to share before we get to today's episode is that you won't hear any ads or sponsor promotions on this podcast, because these honest conversations are 100% listener funded. They're made possible by awesome regular people like you who give $8 or more per eight-episode season. The show is and will always be free. But if you love it, if these conversations make you laugh, think, and feel less alone, I hope you'll go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more per eight-episode season. This kind of tangible financial support, that's what allows me to make the show. And it also pays everyone involved in making Real Talk Radio. That's me, my sound engineer, Adam Day, and every single one of my guests. It's been my dream for years to be able to pay all of my guests, and a few months ago, our community met the funding goal to make that happen. So all the guests whose stories you love are indeed getting paid for their time, with higher rates always being paid to our guests of color, as well as our queer and trans guests and others with traditionally marginalized identities. I know it's not the norm in the podcast industry to pay guests or to have a listener-funded show for that matter, I guess, um, but I fully believe that where we spend our money is a real-time vote for the kind of world we want to live in. And if I want to live in a world of honest conversations where people get paid for the work they do, especially creative work, that means it's up to me to create that model here at Real Talk Radio. And as a special thank you for supporting the show, you'll get access to over 40 hours of bonus content, as well as our monthly book club, my weekly behind the scenes email series. That's where I share my real life in real time. Plus, you'll be the first to know when tickets go on sale for live events and retreats. Sometimes the live events and retreats actually get sold out within the Patreon community. So if you're interested in that, that is a good place to be. Also, 5% of each season's profit is donated to a different social justice organization, with past donations going to places like Trans Lifeline, Black Lives Matter, and Planned Parenthood, so you can feel good about that aspect of your pledge contribution to this show as well. 
If you go over to Patreon, you'll see that there are currently three different funding levels. There's an $8 level, a $16 level, and a $25 level, each with their own unique, awesome bonuses. At the $25 level, that's where we do our live Google Hangouts. And oh my gosh, those are so much fun. Those are perhaps one of my favorite things uh, that we do in the Patreon community. So one more time, that's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. And at the very end of this episode, you'll actually get to meet one of our Patreon community members who joins me for a fun little rapid fire question round. So stick around for that after the main episode for sure. And now let's dive right into today's episode. Today, you'll get to meet Kirby. Kirby is a mid-20s public health nerd living in the San Francisco Bay Area, whose passions fall at the intersection of public health, sustainability, and exploring the outdoors. Her type 1 diabetes and Hashimoto's thyroidosis diagnoses in 2014 drove her to pursue those interests full-time as she returned to school to get her master's in public health, adopted a low-waste lifestyle to offset the footprint of her growing medical waste, and recently completed her first thru-hike in 2018 of the High Sierra Trail. In this episode, Kirby talks about public health versus wellness culture and how she manages to navigate wellness culture while being chronically ill. We talk about the stigma and shame of illness in our current culture and about how a term like health is so tough to define. Kirby shares what her true self-care looks like and about how it's often things that are unsexy and not as aesthetically appealing as what wellness culture shows us on Instagram. We also talk about hiking, which we both love, and Kirby shares how she's learned to manage her blood sugar and do long-distance hikes with type 1 diabetes. She also gives us accessible tips for living a more low-waste lifestyle, especially when so much of the hashtag zero-waste narrative is focused on a largely white and able-bodied audience. I absolutely loved having this conversation with Kirby, and I hope that you enjoy getting to know her just as much. So all of that starts in just a moment, and as always, you'll be able to find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode over in the show notes at NicoleAntoinette.com slash podcast. All right, we are rolling. Kirby, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. So we are a little over halfway through January. Somehow that has happened. And <laughs> I know that instead of setting resolutions for the year, you chose a word to guide you. Can you talk about that? Yeah, um, I guess that at this stage of my life, I'm 26. I'll be turning 27 in May, so still incredibly young. Um, but I've gone through several, several seasons of life where you kind of just see people setting these just, you know, really stress inducing resolutions for themselves. And I definitely did that to myself for quite a few years. So I'm trying something new this year. And I chose the word begin because I find that with the anxiety that I struggle with, um, I can get really inside my head and I really struggle with analysis paralysis. So I'll just sit there kind of like ruminating over something that I want to do, even if it's something as simple as, you know, I really think I want to go to the store around the corner from my apartment and pick up a new like watercolor brush. But then I'll think, you know, should I tack another errand onto that? Uh, am I being most efficient? Like, what is the best way to like optimize this task? And instead of just going to go do the thing that I want to do, I just, you know, hang out in this weird limbo of indecision. So my goal for the new year is kind of just to stop doubting myself so much and to just feel comfortable getting started, even if that means I have to restart or pivot or anything, you know, just do something. 
Yeah, I I can resonate with this so much. Uh, the thing that just popped into my head, I think I thought about this a lot on um, the different long distance hikes that I've done. And obviously, I know that hiking is a, a love that we share. So I'm sure we'll talk about that. But I used to get really and I probably still do get um, pretty big anxiety when I'm about to go back on trail, right? Like something mm-hmm. about like leaving town or having to go back on trail. And I'd feel all these feelings. And I just started using the mantra, put your body in the space, which to me is like, I know that, okay, well, once I'm back on trail and then you just take a couple steps and then you get a couple miles from the trailhead, everything's fine. It's like mostly me being stuck in my head. And I've noticed that that's happened, like you said, with analysis paralysis, whether it's errands or other things, like I just keep going back to you, like just put your body in the space and trust that it's going to be fine or that it won't be fine and I'll figure it out, right? It's like just, I, so I love that idea of just begin, like just do it, just start, just break the seal. There's something in that that I feel like is simple and also really powerful. And I really love the phrase that you use, and especially in the context of hiking, just thinking of all of the trips that I've been curious about taking, but just have been so scared about that that feat. But knowing that like, if you just got started, if you just went there, you could always get off trail. I mean, you could always do a section hike. You could always do X, Y, and Z and still have started it. So I think that's really powerful. Yeah, this idea of like, just start and you'll figure it out, right? Like, you're smart, you'll figure it out. (laughs) We have so far, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and if not, you ask for help or you, but it's like so easy to forget these kind of things when you're in the moment of, oh my gosh, right? And the anxiety takes over just to be like, just do something. I tend also to like blow out of proportion how long something is going to take. I don't know if this is part of the paralysis for you too, but like relatively easy tasks or things that shouldn't be a big deal. I'm like, oh my God, it's going to be this huge thing and it's going to take so long. And and then I put it off and I put it off and I put it off. And then like when I do it, it takes like five minutes. You posted a story about that the other day. I forget what you posted oh about, God. but I was yeah. like, yeah. I was like, I totally feel that of just like the, the easiest five minute task that I just put off for months. For yeah. no reason. <laughs> yeah. I the the story that you're referring to, back in May, I was on the East Coast doing um a couple of different Real Talk Live events, um, one in Boston and one in DC. And I was in DC and I was staying at, at a hotel and I needed to get cash for something. And I went to the ATM and when I was at the ATM, I realized that I had forgotten my PIN number because I just very rarely use it. I don't use a debit card that much. And I couldn't figure it out. And I, you know, got locked out of the thing and I couldn't do it. I thought, okay, I'll just deal with it when I get home. And it was, I just didn't. I kept thinking, oh my gosh, it's, I'm going to have to go to the credit union. I mean, sidebar, it's like 10 minutes from my house. So I don't know why that was, I'm going to have to go and it's going to be this whole thing. And they're going to have to issue me a new card. And then I won't have a card for a while. And I put it off basically right up until I left for the PCT. And then I thought, well, now I can't do it because I don't have time for them to mail me a new card. So I went through this entire three-month hike, like not being able to get cash. It was a whole thing. And I thought, I'll just deal with it as soon as I get back from trail. And then I got back and then I just kept not dealing with it. And I had to go to the credit union like a couple days ago to do something for my taxes. And when I was there, I said, oh, you know, by the way, I don't remember my PIN number. Is that, you know, what's the process for changing that? And the the woman that was helping me was like, oh, it'll just take two minutes. Like, let, just give me your card. I'll reset it. And you can just pick a new PIN. And I was like, are you kidding? It took literally two minutes and I put it off for eight months. So. It is it is wild. It is wild, the kind of mental gymnastics that we jump through to kind of justify not doing things that just improve the quality of our lives, like, dramatically. Yeah. Did you, I should link to this in the show notes, did you read that recent article um, about millennial burnout on BuzzFeed? Ironically, I was starting to read it, but I got so burned out. <laughs> it was like stress inducing to try to get through that. Um, I I made it through some of it because I saw a lot of people from my high school that were linking it on Facebook. Um, and I was just like, 
this must be something that like this must be a sign that we're just all incredibly burned out because I feel like I've been incredibly burned out and all of my close friends have been incredibly burned out. So to see people that were from my high school posting it, I was like, we're all, something's going on here. Something, something's missing in the basic like level of care that we're able to give ourselves. Yeah, it, it was definitely, a, it was a pretty long article. I will say that there were a couple points <laughs> where I'm like, can I power through this? Well, and then I also <laughs> wanted to read some of the response pieces, you know, because uh, that were written by, you know, people who had different identities than the original author of the piece and talking about like what burnout is like in different communities. And so then I kind of oh, went, went down that rabbit hole. Um, and <laughs> anyway, so yes, I can link to these things in the show notes, but sort of the takeaway was that it, it does tend to be around a lot of these like seemingly simple tasks that oh, it's yeah, yeah. just the the exhaustion is too. Yeah. Anyway, so yes, I hear you. <laughs> We're there. Yeah. <laughs> so talk to me about a few of the high and low points from the past year for you. What was 2018 like? Oh, man. 2018, I, I realized, you know, as we got into the new year that I do this thing where I in, interact with a lot of people and I find that I kind of really absorb other people's emotions pretty easily when we're interacting. So I had a lot of friends who had a really hard 2018. So I got into this kind of mental record that I would play back to myself saying like, oh, 2018 sucks. Like 2018 is just like shitty. Like I feel like everyone is just having such a hard time. Um, But when we got into the new year, I realized actually on a personal level, like my 2018 was really good. (laughs) Like um, there were definite points of the year that were difficult for me. But I think this being my kind of, I think this coming June will be my second year in California in the Bay Area. Um, But last January 2018, kind of starting my first full calendar year in California, um, I really did a lot. I, um, I let me just think back through the year in March, I think, I agreed to do the Beyond Type 1 panel on um, staying active with type 1 diabetes. So I got to participate in the Bay Area Diabetes Summit and share my experiences hiking um, and trying to get outdoors with type 1 diabetes. Um, And that was really, really cool because I got to be a part of this community and meet a bunch of people who were exactly like me and show up in this space where we're all kind of just like beeping and eating candy and granola bars, trying to get our blood sugars up. And it was like really dorky and fun. And I had a blast doing that. And I think actually before that, I first went to an unlikely hikers meetup uh, by Jenny Brusso. So I got to meet some people here because I just moved to the Bay Area in June 2017. So I got to meet some people through that. And I met my friend Rahawa and it was that winter kind of like the February, March part of the year where I messaged her um, after we hiked together over the summer a bit. And I asked her if she would want to do a through hike of the High Sierra Trail um, in the summer. And we kind of just like tabled it and said, you know, that would be really cool. Let's put in an application for a permit um, and see what happens. So that was that point of the year where we connected and like the winter of 2018, um, sorry, late 2017, early 2018. I'm getting my year mixed up, uh, <laughs> thinking about this past winter 2018. But then after that point, I did the Bay Area Diabetes Summit. I became a climbing mentor with Girl Ventures. It's an organization here in the Bay Area that puts 
mentor. So anyone who climbs, it's really just anyone who has been on any sort of rock wall and is friendly and is affirming and is open-minded. You work with youth. Um, they say it's girl ventures. You work with girls, middle school age through high school age, but it's gender nonconforming, um, people of all gender identities. So I did that, um, program, I think in the spring of 2018, which was really, really, really fun. I did my first outdoor climb, which was really scary and really fun. So that kind of started building the tone for what my summer would be of trying new scary things. And I found out, I found out that we actually did get our permit for the High Sierra Trail. So I think for how and I touched base like just at the start of the summer um, and we were like, OK, I guess we're going to do this. So I kind of went off of social media for the whole summer and Rahal and I just kind of touched base and did local hikes with loaded packs. And I just was on trails a lot this summer, beating myself up for not thinking that I would be good enough or strong enough um, for doing a through hike. Um, I actually had a lot of fear sourced hiking. Like I, I hiked from a place of fear and anxiety. And I remember backpacking in the Yosemite high country with my friend Gina, um, who was the the person who really kind of tipped me off about the High Sierra Trail. I think I found her blog back in 2015 or 2016, and she had a bunch of pictures from this just like insanely beautiful trail. And I messaged her because I moved to Oakland where she was, and we got coffee and just I asked her a million questions about this trail. And then winter came and she suggested I do a permit, even though I didn't feel ready. And then we got the permit, Rahawa and I, and Gina just continued to help us make our itinerary. And she and I went hiking over the summer and we were in Yosemite and we were going on an overnight backpacking trip. And it was just so steep and so hot. And I just kept on, you know, mentally beating myself up for not being fast enough or good enough. And I think that that trip was really eye-opening for me because it created a really safe space where Gina just kept on encouraging me and saying, you know, like, we're out here, like, you're doing this, like, this is all it is. It's just a walk. You're just walking. And I think after that point, leaving the valley and leaving Yosemite and then coming back home to the bay ahead of the hike for this year, I, you know, I was just like, I just, I guess I'll just try it. So, um, summer continued a few more local hikes and then July hit late July and Rahawa and I went to Visalia and then we went to Sequoia to start the high Sierra trail. And we did that somehow we did it. <laughs> it's just, you know, I think the, the high of my 2018 was literally the high of being on Mount Whitney and just, um, having the trail behind me and summiting Mount Whitney, um, because I'd actually tried to summit Mount Whitney in fall 2017. Um, and I got sick, um, at trail camp. So just shy of the summit. And I had to stay behind while my friends summited because obviously I didn't want them to <laughs> not go up because I wasn't feeling well. And I was, I was fine. You know, we let people in the tents nearby know what was going on. Um, I'd had some ketones building up, um, because I hadn't been at that elevation before. And, I just didn't really know what it meant to manage your blood sugars in the backcountry. So um, I did a lot of learning before I did the High Sierra Trail. I saw a lot of my doctors. I kind of connected with other type 1 diabetics who were super active. And it all kind of culminated to that moment where I'm on Mount Whitney and thinking, you know, like, this is this is as good as it gets this year. This is just incredible. Um, 
So I think that's something that I'm really super just still in awe of. I'm looking at a High Sierra Trail poster that Gina actually made for me because she's a cartographer. I'm looking at it on my wall right now um, and just feeling like, you know, if you can do something like that, if you can not accomplish something that you set out to accomplish and then do it within that calendar year and do it 10 times, you know, more than you thought you'd ever be able to do. So doing a whole through hike on top of doing that summit, I think was just really, really amazing for me. And I think I kind of quantify like my life's accomplishments. Like, I think it's funny. I'm talking so much about this. I also got promoted at work this year, but like this kind of stuff is like way more important to me, like on a soul level. Cause like, you know, moving up in your career is nice and having new titles is nice. But at the end of the day, I think my biggest goal and just living every day of my life is just to really feel at home in myself and feel like I'm doing things that bring me joy. Um, and I, I definitely think that 2018 was a year that I really accomplished that. So, um, I think that was pretty much my year in a nutshell of just feeling really aligned with the vision of the life that I have for myself. Um, and I think that being able to accomplish the things that I did helped give me a bit of a buffer when things weren't going so great. Um, so, um, I have a sibling who was hospitalized in the fall just before the new year. Um, and that was really, really, really hard for me. So I think that I had some kind of cushioning from all of the things that I was able to try and like all of the, the work that I was able to do in therapy. That was also a huge part of my 2018 was just investing a lot of time in therapy and learning coping skills and joining an anxiety group and just like sitting in a room with people and talking about like the, the things that we think in our head that just aren't real and affirming each other and kind of walking each other through scenarios that we can you know, overcome together. And it was just really, it really empowered me to do my hike. It really empowered me to perform differently at work so that I could get a promotion. It empowered me to set boundaries and be able to help however I could with my family situation. Um, but I, th I think, I think therapy was the biggest game changer in 2018, actually. Yeah, I love that. I mean, there's so much stuff in what you just said that I'm like, wait, I want to talk about this. I want to talk about this. <laughs> like, so, so much good stuff. I love this idea that you just touched on of, you know, filling yourself up, whether that's like therapy or like you said, doing the things that make you feel aligned with what you want, make your soul feel good. And, you know, that that can, I've never really heard it put that way of the idea that that can sort of act as a buffer for harder things or harder times, but it makes complete sense because if you're really filled up, then you just have more space, I think, and maybe more resilience. Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. So a couple things that I just wanted to touch on from what you just said, you lightly mentioned that you took a social media break over the summer. Can you talk about that? I did. And I think I might have posted about the reasoning behind it after I came back. So I, I really just wanted to focus on hiking for the summer. And I think hiking on social media is so interesting um, because it's kind of how I found out about hiking being from the Midwest. I'm from Chicago. I just moved here um, like I said, a little over two year, a little under two years ago. And I saw all of these beautiful pictures of Yosemite and, you know, just mainly California. I was just like, I, you know, I really want to go there. It looks beautiful. Um, and, you know, I came here for my practicum during grad school. And then I came here to move here and I did go out on trails and I took beautiful pictures and the pictures I was taking got a lot of engagement. You know, I, I have a private 
very, very tiny account, but people like pictures of beautiful mountains and, you know, scenic vistas. And I think in taking a break this summer, I really wanted to kind of sit with my motivations for being outside and to sit with what being outside meant to be, but to me and like whether or not I actually liked it. So I think it was, it was a necessary thing that I needed to do to make sure that I actually liked being outside for the right reasons and that I, you know, I was okay taking this through hike, um, this very scenic and very beautiful and like aesthetically pleasing through hike, you know, at the end of the day, um, just for the sole purpose of liking hiking. Um, Mm -hmm. and I didn't want to put any weird pressure on myself. I do put a lot of like weird pressure on myself. Like, Oh man, I just, you know, posted that I'm going to do this through hike, but like, what if something happens? And what if it, you know, I, I decide to get off trail or I can't do it or like search and rescue has to get me off of a trail. Like I kind of just want to like, just have a completely separate space to explore all of this with no pressure, yeah. no visibility. I mean, I can definitely relate to that. I very publicly went for a through oh, hike, yeah. but then I got off trail, right? So like I completely relate to that and the, the experience of having to or I guess having to slash choosing to quit something really publicly was actually hugely beneficial for me. So that, you know, I I can relate to that for sure. I, I can also really relate to the sort of checking yourself on your motivations, right? And I think that social media makes things complicated in that regard, because I think it's totally fine to want to share stuff or whether it's pretty pictures or things you did or things that were good or things that were hard. I think that's like a pretty natural impulse as like social creatures. And I there definitely is a difference for me of like things that I have done just to be able to post about them versus things that right. I'm doing because I inherently want to do them. And then I'm also posting about them, right? Like looking at what that balances. I remember I hosted my first of the series of Real Talk retreats that I'm doing um, in 2019 uh, a few weeks ago. And we were talking about, you know, goals and intentions and stuff for the year. And one of the conversations that wound up coming up with the guests at the retreat was, you know, of these things that you say are important to you for this year, is there anything on that list that if you absolutely couldn't post about it on social media, would you still do it? And it wound up generating a really interesting conversation. I love that. And yeah, I totally feel like I have so much more clarity now um, about the things that I actually enjoy doing. And I'm still going to post about them. But now I know that if like my phone, like you're saying, my phone broke and fell off of the side of the mountain, I'd still be out there. You know? Yeah, totally. Like, I wouldn't suddenly like throw a tantrum and want to go home. Yeah. And I think it's important to know like what the balance of sharing is that feels good for you. Cause I think that's going to be different for everyone. Like that's a question that I get sometimes because I have so far done daily posts, right. With like pretty lengthy, this is the max Instagram caption, right. Like captions on my (laughs) hikes. And, you know, people say, don't you think you would enjoy this more if you were less plugged in? And it's been surprising for me to have to explain or like think through or like tell people my thought process that I actually enjoy it more. I'm not someone who privately journals. I just, to be honest with you, won't do it. And having, knowing that I'm going to be writing about something makes me pay attention more. Um, and so I actually feel like I've gotten more out of it because I'm writing about it. I don't know. Maybe, and maybe that's just me, but it's been interesting. To I be agree like, with that. Yeah. Yeah. I I think I posted, it was the first time I did any sort of like West Coast big trail hiking um, during my practicum. Um, When I flew out here for a summer, I took all public transit to get to Yosemite Valley. And I did the the four mile trail from the Valley floor to Glacier Point. And I was by myself. Um, That was super steep elevation gain. It was 3,200 feet. It was the middle of summer. 
I hadn't really been outdoors in that capacity before. So I had my phone with me and I'm not sure if you've been to the Valley, but there's great cell reception. Um, So I kind of, you know, I just kept on hiking up and taking breaks and posting. I don't know if the stories feature was available at that point. Um, I think I was using Snapchat and just Instagram posts, Um, but I was just kind of checking in every couple of hundred feet just so that I had some like some like some semblance of connection to people because I felt kind of alone. I was kind of worried about my blood sugars. I wanted people to be able to like say, you know, she died over there. Like her last check-in point was like on that ledge. Like if something happened to my blood sugar, like I got bitten by a rattlesnake or something. So it actually, it gave me a sense of like safety and it did make me pay attention more and it was fun. And I, I, yeah, I don't get the kind of, I know that in the hiking community and like on some forums on Reddit, people can be super dogmatic as, you know, people can be with most things, but they can be super dogmatic about the place of technology outdoors, which I think is, it's too bad because it is beneficial. Like we've both experienced. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you mentioned a couple of times, the struggle of managing your blood sugars, you know, being outdoors in the high country. I think that you said um, in preparation for the high Sierra trail, that that's something that you like really looked into and and researched and try to figure out. Can you um, talk about that a little more? Because I know literally zero about that (laughs) other than things that I have heard you talk about. (laughs) And most, most people would not know anything about managing type one diabetes outdoors um, because it's not something that you see unless you're really searching for it online or you're plugged into a type one community, um, which is what I learned. I didn't know that I had to kind of search that out. I kind of just assumed that, you know, I have an insulin pump. I have a continuous glucose monitor. You know, I've got insulin. I've got snacks. I always have great snacks. Like I, I will be fine. But when you're out on a kind of ongoing through hike, any sort of like long distance hiking in remote areas with type one diabetes, the, the game just completely changes. Um, because your body just the physiology of your body is just constantly, changing while you're out there. So if you're you're hiking and you're hiking through an exposed section of a trail and it's super sunny um, and it's super hot and you're really overheating, your blood vessels are actually expanding. So your insulin is actually absorbing a lot more rapidly. Hmm. So you're experiencing more blood sugar crashes, which means that you have to eat more, but then you're being more physically active. So the insulin is more sensitive when you're taking it. So you're probably taking less insulin to cover food that you would otherwise cover a more generous amount with insulin in your day-to-day life. Like if I'm eating a really sugary, like cliff bar, for an example, those are like just sugar bricks. And if you eat that sitting at a desk, you're going to probably cover a few units of insulin and it's fine. But if you're hiking and you're moving and you have these other variables in the equation, like heat and inclines and, you know, prolonged cardio, you're not going to take as much insulin. So what happens is that your body starts building up ketones and you become, you become more dehydrated and your energy is converting completely differently. So what happens is you can start going into diabetic ketoacidosis, um, which is essentially just the buildup of sugar in the blood, um, because you don't have enough insulin to transport that sugar into the blood cells for energy. Um, you start urinating, you start peeing it out. And when you go into DKA, your vision blurs, you know, you lose a lot of weight 
because you're not retaining any of the energy that you're eating. You just are completely exhausted. Your muscles cramp up. And that was a lot of what I experienced when I was doing um, the trail of the Whitney portal trail in 2017, I was just not able to keep my blood sugar up and I was just eating and eating and eating and eating. So not only was I like feeling super nauseous while going up in elevation, um, which already makes, I'm sure, you know, you already become nauseous. You can't really eat anyway. Um, you already feel like shit. So I'm just eating and eating and my body isn't doing anything with it because my pump is suspended. I actually turned my pump off when I was doing that trail. So my pump had been off for like six hours because I didn't know that even during that short window of time of not having insulin that I could build up so many ketones that I'd get sick. So it's just this recipe for disaster and you can't really um, get a sense of what's going on unless you have ketone strips, um, which are these strips that have a chemical on them so that when you pee, on that strip, you can see where your blood sugar range is, like the amount of sugar in your urine that you're peeing out because it's not being absorbed into your cells. So when I got to trail camp doing that trail and I peed on a ketone strip, it was dark purple, which means that that's like the max load of ketones and like you're pretty sick. And, you know, kind of textbook diabetic ketoacidosis, like in real life, like in your office or on the street, your blood sugars are super high because you're not physically active um, and there's nothing kind of counteracting that amount of blood sugar that's rising. But when you're out on trail and you're hiking and you're super active, your blood sugars look normal. Um, And, you know, you might be experiencing altitude sickness and those symptoms look exactly like, you know, dealing with blood sugar trouble. So it's, it's, it can get very dangerous very quickly. So between that first experience, the Whitney Portal Trail, and then to doing the High Sierra Trail, what are one or two things that you changed? Um, electrolyte tablets. Those those are huge. I, I did not realize what a huge difference those would make until I think I was on day two of the High Sierra Trail. And Rahawa actually recommended them to me. And um, it was something that came up when I did the Baria Diabetes Panel because a few other athletes that were there used them. But they keep you from going dehydrated. And when you go dehydrated, that just increases your risk of DKA. So when I was using those tablets on the High Sierra Trail, that was like my number one thing. So the first difference was the electrolyte tablets. And the second thing was um, ketone strips. I happened to have them when I did the portal side in 2017. But on the High Sierra Trail, having them, I regularly made that a part of my routine. Just wake up, pee on a ketone strip. If I had ketones, take a lot of electrolytes. Take insulin when you don't think you need it, um, was something my endocrinologist told me. So if you have a low blood sugar or if your blood sugar's on the lower side, you have to force feed yourself and just continue eating and taking a shit ton of insulin so that your body is continuing to see insulin um, and you're not kind of, you know, putting yourself at that same level of risk. And it really, it really worked and it made a huge difference. And again, I'm sure you, you know, when you're hiking long distance and when you're going up in elevation, you just don't want to eat and it's really hard and it's really uncomfortable. But that was just something that I felt really empowered to do. I think with having a great hiking partner and with having a realistic itinerary, 
I was able to successfully do that trail because I could get those basic kind of care things in place. Yeah. Uh, there's something coming through for me as you're talking about this idea of like, figure out what you need, right? Like not what this other person on the internet needs to do their hike or what would like, what do you need? And then to the best of your ability, you know, like meet those criteria for yourself. Right. And so it's like figuring out like the specific things that are going to make you hopefully feel as good as possible, hopefully make it as safe as possible. And, you know, that might be different for you than it is for me, but those things like still exist. And I, I feel like, you know, when you were talking about doing the, the training hike and feeling like, oh, I'm so slow doing this, like there's all sorts of stuff. I feel like that, I mean, I can only talk from my own experience that like goes on through our heads or goes on through my head during, you know, long hikes and this type of stuff. And it's just kind of wild the way that our like brain monkeys, right. And the ways that we like talk to ourselves about this kind of stuff and so much about hiking the PCT and quitting the PCT, you know, last year for me Mm -hmm. came down to this, like not be, I wasn't really willing to give myself the things that I needed or admit the things that I needed, right. That I don't want to do the huge miles that a lot of other people want to do that, you know, there were just a bunch of different criteria. I'm have a lot of sleep problems and just like the things that I need in order to continue to enjoy this activity is probably different than like maybe what other people need. And what if I just do a hike where I let myself do that? And I'm going back to the PCT this spring to do the 700 mile desert section and like really approaching it. I know you and I talked about this on Instagram, but approaching this completely differently. Like, okay. You you just have to. yeah. 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 And just like see what happens because this is something that I love and I want to keep loving it and following other people's scripts for how to do it was making me really unhappy. And it's so rampant in the hiking community online. I mean, between like the ultralight philosophies and, you know, just crushing big miles, you know, you've got influencers now, which is so crazy to think about and like the kind of like hiking capacity, but there are, there are people who have branded themselves as like experts on trails and long distance trails and they're doing 30 mile days. And you, you know, watching that, I'm like, fuck, I cannot, I can barely hike five miles at like. 2,500 feet elevation gain. And, you know, it, it took an uncomfortable summer and sitting with the differences that made me, me as a hiker, um, that kind of made me feel empowered and safe and, um, ready to communicate my needs to somebody. And again, I feel really, really fortunate that I had such an amazing, receptive, open-minded hiking partner, because I think that also makes a huge difference is who you're surrounding yourself with on trail. Obviously it's different if you're doing a solo hike. Um, but I, I definitely, it's been a learning curve for me. And I think I learned a lot about communicating between the trip I took in 2017 and between the high Sierra trail, because I don't think I communicated my needs well with my group at all. Nobody knew what my pump did. Like if they had to do something, like they wouldn't know how to manipulate my pump. They would not know how to manipulate my continuous glucose monitor. They wouldn't know how to administer um, glucagon. So that's like a solution that gets injected if I'm unconscious. And it gives me kind of a rush of glucose um, needed to bring me to a baseline, baseline so that people could feed me if I were unconscious, like Mm -hmm. I didn't go over any of that with them. And it was, you know, in hindsight, that could have killed me. That could have compromised somebody else's safety. So it's, it's a learning process for sure. Yeah. And, you know, figuring out what you need, being honest with yourself about what you need. And then, like you said, being able to communicate that to whoever you're with. Yeah. 
people can't read your mind. You got to, you got to, you know, advocate for yourself always. Yeah. I mean, and it's sometimes I think it can be getting over the hump of like, it's actually okay to need things, which sounds silly as I say that. But, you know, with the hiking partner that I'm going out on trail with this spring, even being able to say like, I'm not, I can't do these big miles. And, you know, these are the couple of things that I need in order to feel good. Like, how does that feel for you? And it's like a small, silly thing. And he's incredibly supportive, but it's still, it's like a vulnerable thing. It's, it's scary. It's vulnerable. You hate feeling weak. I think this makes me think of the moment when I was, you know, we were going up on the final stretch of Mount Whitney's trail to the summit and something I didn't mention earlier, just another difference of having diabetes on a trail, your devices will stop working at a certain elevation. Hmm. Um, so my continuous glucose monitor, which gives me five minute glucose readings, um, that basically stopped working on day two. And I had to manually test my, test my blood sugar and I did not have enough supplies for that. So I had to ration myself on the trail, which was extremely anxiety inducing and scary, but I managed. But with my pump, I got up to the summit, like just like 300 feet shy of the summit and it just failed. And there was the huge failure siren and it was just, it was just screeching out. We were so close and I just look at Rahawa and she's just ahead of me and I just burst into tears and I fall against a rock and I'm just sobbing. And in that moment she just came over and she hugged me and she was like, I know. And that was all there was. And she just got it. And she gave me the space to kind of grieve for my summit because I, I was not able to summit on my own terms. I think that diabetes kind of stole the spotlight again. And that was frustrating for me. But just in terms of, you know, feeling completely safe to be vulnerable. And, you know, I think that was absolutely the key to our success as a as a unit. <laughs> and I'm I can't I can't rave about that experience enough of just being seen and people leaving space for you to feel what you need to feel, um, so that you can move forward. Um, it's made a huge difference for me. Yeah. And, you know, obviously being there to help you if you need help, but not trying to fix you. I don't know if that's something for you, but like for me, you know, when I look to the people who are the most supportive, right? It's not, they're not like jumping in, like trying to fix the problem because first of all, like not everything can be fixed or needs to be fixed. We're not talking about like in acute, this is an emergency situation, right? But just in general, like you said, giving you space to process your feelings. I feel like that's so huge to, I don't know, like have the confidence to do that for somebody else, like to just let what's true be true and to sit with that with them. I love that. I love that in the context of diabetes too, because I think, um, it's obviously people's first instinct if they don't have diabetes and they're with a diabetic who is either going low or high or is sick, they want to fix that situation immediately. And it is so annoying as a diabetic if you have somebody making suggestions or just kind of asking you a million questions and you're not cognitively all there. And somebody is just like frantically trying to like, you know, de-escalate that situation. And it's just kind of like, you just have to be okay with sitting in discomfort and you have to be okay with letting this process unfold. Um, because I've given you the tools that you need to be there safely with me. And, you know, outside of that, we both just need to just sit with it and be patient. Um, and that's kind of a huge learning moment with getting diagnosed with diabetes is just, you know, this this shit is just going to happen sometimes and you kind of just need to like write it out. So I definitely, it's, it was a learning curve, I think for the two of us on the trail. Um, and it's been a learning curve with everyone in my life of just like 
they want to ask questions, they want to fix things. And it's just like, okay, we just need to just stop for a second. And by that final day, we just stopped and it was just perfect. It just, we worked perfectly as a team. Yeah. This makes me want to ask you, um, is there, I'm, I'm sure the answer is yes, but is there anything that you want to share that, you know, let's say folks who don't have diabetes or don't have the experience with that, that you're like, oh, I wish they knew this or did this or didn't do this. You know, how you just said, like, give me some space. Don't ask a million questions. Is there anything else? Um, so I think just with type one diabetes, the widely felt sentiment in the community is just, you know, at a bare minimum, we just want people to ask questions instead of making assumptions. And I think, um, I might speak to this later as we continue talking, but just, you know, being okay with the fact that I have type one diabetes and just sitting with that, you know, I, I think I, I got diagnosed fairly recently. I think, um, in eight days, actually, it'll be my five year kind of diversary. That's what we call it. The, the anniversary of your diagnosis. I was diagnosed in 2014, my senior year of college. Um, and I think something that I experienced was just that people wanted an explanation all the time. And there's just this shame cycle that comes with that expectation because people want you to explain why you got sick. And that's not something that I can give anyone. I can't even give myself that, um, that answer because that answer does not exist. You know, I think that the current culture that we live in, the wellness culture that we live in, there's this this obsession with the root cause and this obsession with kind of unpacking like why we get sick instead of just accepting the fact that sick people just exist. They always have. And I work in public health and, you know, I have studied public health and I'm so passionate about prevention and, you know, moving towards systems that support health altogether, um, instead of looking at health in this very like individualistic, you did something wrong lens. But I think for me personally, I would love if that was something that people started transitioning away from was, you know, even if somebody did, did something like you ran in the middle of the street and you, you know, ran in front of a car and you broke your leg and that was something you did, maybe just ask somebody like how they're doing, not like what they did, you know? Because that's not helping them move forward. Yeah. So this opens up a topic that I'm really interested in talking to you about, this idea of public health versus wellness culture. And before we get into that, this might seem like kind of a silly question, but I'm going to ask it anyway in case, you know, someone listening wants some clarification. Can you explain, like, what is public health? Yeah, it's it's the question that students get asked when they enter a public health curriculum because um, it's, it's a fairly – established field within the context of just like civilizations and like basic infrastructure, like, you know, clean water and doing things to keep people healthy. But the field itself and actually the field of study is something that's very much still emerging and public health, the way I describe it to people is just everything. And, um, when you're in school and you're talking about what public health is, you actually, in most programs, I think you have a program called like, what is public health? And there, I think there was like an ad campaign at one point where there were stickers that said, this is public health. And you just stuck them on everything. So like buses, you stick that on a bus, that's public health. Water fountains, stick that on the water fountain, that's public health. A trash can, that's public health. Public health is 
everything. It's, you know, it's our infrastructure, it's our healthcare delivery, it's our food system, our food production system, it's our education system, because education is kind of the bedrock of, you know, social determinants of health, like what trajectory people will have in their life course, it's accessibility to jobs. It's not just, you know, a doctor in a white coat or a researcher. It's all of these systems interacting with each other all of the time. Um, and I, I, I like to remind people that most organizations, most sectors have some sort of public health or like health division. So like the National Park Service, there's the public health division with like, you know, some fancy private job corporation. They have some sort of like health and wellness you know, branch or division. There's public health and everything pretty much. Okay. So for your job specifically, when someone asks you what you do, how do you describe your work? Um, so I work in public health research and I do maternal and child research. Um, so we are looking at mom and baby and we're looking at the outcomes for the baby. So what I do is I support some of the like principal investigators who are kind of generating these research questions. Like, um, how can we prevent a mom from having a catastrophic birth outcome? What are the sign of the kind of like flags that will come up in her delivery encounter? So as soon as she hits that hospital admission, what things are we looking out for so that we can flag her and keep her monitored more closely so that she is not, you know, getting completely sick or her baby's not getting completely sick. So I do a lot of data management and, I manage the data for all of Northern California hospitals for the organization that I work for. And we're just constantly tracking babies um, and making sure that they get delivered healthy because really public health and health in general starts in the womb. It's womb to tomb. It's every exposure that you have from your mom to delivery to the rest of your life. And I think that's what's so cool is that you know, even though I'm not going out in the community, which is something I'm really passionate about. I studied community health science, but I'm working in data. I still have that kind of capacity to look at trends that could be stopped or improved and then impact health that way. Mm -hmm. You used a phrase before um, that I'd love some more specifics on. Um, you said the social determinants of health. Can you talk mm -hmm. about that and maybe give some like tangible examples? Yeah. Um, so I think that's pretty much the biggest um, thing that differs between like wellness culture and public health is that in public health, we realize that health does not exist in a test tube and that it's not just one individual's good or bad behavior in quotation that kind of defines like their life course. It's these social determinants of health. It's, you know, there's, um, there's a scoring metric called the ACEs. It's like the adverse childhood experiences survey. And it's like, if a child grows up and they grow up in a house of domestic violence and there's poverty and, you know, they have to, as in high school, they've got to work and they can't do their homework. How is that impacting their health? How is how far they live away from a BART station or a bus stop impacting their commute? How is that impacting their health? In the Bay Area, the cost of living has become so so high that you have people at my organization and at other organizations who commute daily to Oakland all the way from Sacramento. How does that impact somebody's quality of life if they're commuting for two or three hours a day? And it's all of these little things that stack up and determine what somebody's health looks like. And somehow, you know, that's not really seeming to be a part of the conversation in, in the wellness community. 
Um, it's very much just like, did you drink your celery juice? And if you didn't, that's why you suck and your health is shitty. Um, whereas in public health, we're like, you know, you don't even have your power on, so you don't have a refrigerator to kind of keep your celery fresh. Let's start there. <laughs> Let's start there. Do you have celery at your bodega? Like what's, you know, what's the macro context behind somebody's health? Yeah, this, the idea of wellness culture, I mean, I, I've been thinking about this a lot in general, and then specifically knowing that you and I were going to get a chance to talk about it. It, so much of it to me, and I'm interested to hear like your, I, I don't know, experience and opinions. It seems so individualistic, right? That it's like you have, you as an individual have complete control of your health. Health is mostly only related to diet and exercise. If you are doing these couple of things or these whatever amount of things, then that's good and healthy. And if you're not doing those things, like then that's why you're sick. Like it's just, it's yeah. like if A, then B. And it's not that those lifestyle factors couldn't be a contributing factor because, I mean, I'm sure that they could be and are, but not always. And it's not the whole picture. It's it's not. And it, it, it ignores the fact that people are messy and lead messy lives and have no control over so many variables. Like, I think that I personally have gotten to where I am in my life, of course, despite having lots of you know, trauma and adversity. And, you know, I've, I've not had an easy go so far, but I, I like to think that I'm where I am because I acknowledge that I have the privileges that I do and the social capital that I do. And I realize that it's not just me making these kind of isolated decisions. It's like this multifactorial kind of cat's cradle of just like opportunities that I've had that have, you know, brought me to where I am now. And I've had some control on that, obviously. But I think in the context of health, you know, it just, it's just not accurate. It's, mm -hmm. it's systemic. We know that we we have data that show that, you know, if you're black or brown, and you go to a medical provider with symptoms, they, you know, there are data to support that show that these patients, these black and brown patients are perceived to have higher pain, tolerances so they don't receive the correct amount of medication that they need. You know, we know that access to care isn't equitable. In my circumstance, my diagnosis story is that I had textbook diabetes symptoms. Textbook. Like I went to the clinic on my campus my senior year of undergrad and I was like, you know, I can't see the 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 whiteboard anymore. I can't read the text. Like I've had 2020 vision my whole life and I can't see anymore. And I'm peeing every five minutes and I feel terrible and I'm throwing up all the time. And the nurse practitioner told me I had an upper respiratory infection. Maybe like she didn't even believe that she gave me an inhaler and she sent me home. And the next week I was in the ICU with a type one diabetes diagnosis, like textbook. And God, what I hadn't, I was uninsured. Luckily my aunt was able because of the affordable care act, she was able to retro retroactively add me to her insurance plan. But you know, like what happens to those people? What happened to those, what happens to those people who are following all of the steps that these kind of, you know, wellness practitioners and influencers are saying you need to follow. What if we are looking after our health, but people don't believe us? What if, we don't have access. What if we can't afford the care that we need? 
what happens then? Yeah. What happens then in the lens of public health is you look at the macro drivers behind that level of inequity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm interested to hear you talk about how you personally navigate wellness culture, you know, with just like being like chronically ill and like existing with wellness culture and then also like working in public health. Like I feel like you're in a really interesting like middle of a Venn diagram, right? Like if we like put all these things together um, and obviously there's lots of different ways that we could come at this, but you know, maybe off the heels of what you just said, maybe talking a little bit about the like stigma and shaming, I think, around illness. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Um, so like I said, I was diagnosed pretty recently. And when I was initially diagnosed, I got diagnosed with type 1 diabetes in January of 2014. And then just a few months after that, I got diagnosed with Hashimoto's thyroiditis. So that's another autoimmune condition wherein your immune system is looking at your thyroid as you know something that shouldn't be there and it's attacking and degrading it, which you know my whole life, it's been pointed out that my thyroid looked kind of funky. I don't know why it took until I was 22 to get diagnosed, but it did. Again, that that's a whole different conversation. Um, but immediately after I got diagnosed and I, you know, started insulin and my hormone replacement for my Hashimoto's, I started seeing um, a functional nutritionist because that word was coming up a ton in thyroid communities. I was like on Reddit, on Reddit diabetes, on Reddit uh, hypothyroid and like, the hypothyroid and Hashimoto's community, that's a different beast that I could talk hours about, but there's just a lot. It's rife with pseudoscience. It's rife with anxiety and a lot of the shame and people just like, you know, just really beating themselves up about not doing the right things um, and feeling miserable and it being their fault. So I, I kind of took a nosedive into that community right after I got sick and they said, you know, go to a functional nutritionist, like medical doctors, they don't care about thyroid patients. They don't know what they're talking about. So I book an appointment with a functional nutritionist and I get a $200 food sensitivity test that is not evidence-based. Um, I paid for that. I start paying for like $200 worth of supplements, like every couple of weeks, sold out of their practice. I sit down with her and she gives me this extremely, extremely restrictive um, autoimmune protocol keto diet. So I couldn't, it was recommended that I not eat more than 20 grams of carbohydrates a day. And she kept on saying that she wanted to like really try to get me off of insulin, which is in the context of type one diabetes fatal. Like you can't get a type one diabetic off of insulin that would kill them because our, pan our pancreases do not create insulin. So she's making these recommendations to me and I'm just kind of like freaking out and I'm trying to meet her halfway. And I think at one point during my appointment, I'm just like trying to communicate that I need some sugar for low blood sugars. So I suggest I'm, I make a suggestion like, oh, you know, if I'm, you know, at the gym or something and I'm running low, can I just like eat like a cutie? And when I said cutie, I meant a clementine. And this woman just like purses her lips. And she just looks at me and she's like, those are full of GMOs. Um, why don't you try like agave instead? And I, I just, like, it took everything. It, it took, it took everything in me. I think the culmination oh of God. that comment, she, you know, <laughs> to do the blood work for the food sensitivity test, she had to take blood for me and she couldn't find my vein. And she said, she, she said to me, she was like, you know, 
usually with most people I can find their veins, but you have rolling veins. So I'm not able to help you today. You need to go to like a third party lab to have them try to work with you. So she like blamed me for being unable to get my blood, which was very easily, you know, got when I went to a clinic, like no issues at all. But just like there was so much kind of like blaming and like judgment in that encounter. I had several appointments with her before I stopped seeing her and I stopped doing that extremely restrictive diet because I got super just like mentally fucked up. Like I was just like, mentally in the worst health that I had been in since diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And during my diagnosis, I wanted to die. I was just like, I can't catch a fucking break. Like I, you know, I, I have all of this stuff that's happened in my life. And then I graduate, I'm like on track to graduate in a few months. And then of course this happens. And then I see this, this practitioner and she's just telling me that I'm causing all of these symptoms and that I, I could be doing so much more than I'm already doing without asking like, baseline like what's your blood sugar or like what was your last a1c how much do you like nothing nothing about my health it was just all kind of assumed and I think that's where that's where the shame and the stigma really come from it's these these communities these wellness communities that just put so much focus on food <laughs> and like supplements instead of like mental health like how different would it have been if she just sat me down and asked, like, how do you feel? Like, walk me through your kind of mental health in a week of managing these conditions. Like, in what ways can we work on coping and, you know, really grieving your formerly healthy body? Like, I didn't do that until I started getting therapy um, at the end of grad school. Like, my therapist was like, I don't think you've coped about your change in health status. And it's just like, how, how, how did I, you know, give so much money and time and energy to these very like surface level markers of health instead of actually tackling the real problem, which was like stress and anxiety and depression, you know? Well, yeah. I mean, and looking at it more holistically, because like uh, uh, barring, the, let's say you have a, an extreme food allergy that, okay, sure, right. maybe not eating that food would, right? Like that would be like a, if this, then this. But other than that, it's like, like to what you're speaking to, that it's almost always more complicated than, you know, wellness culture wants us to think that it is. And I, yeah, and I, I wrote this down because um, I think this, this applies perfectly. You know, when you're in public health and you go to school they ask everyone to sit down and write down a definition of health. What is health? What is the perfect definition of what health is? And you write something and we all kind of just like do this. We're doing exactly this. We point out these like, you eat well, you, you know, you took health at school and like you understand what it means to like take care of your mental, physical, whatever. But like the World Health Organization actually defines health as a state of complete physical, mental and social well-being and not merely the absence of disease. And I feel like wellness communities are so hyper-focused on the absence of disease that they completely miss the mental and social elements. It's like, okay, yeah, you told me to eliminate basically 90% of the foods that I can eat. How does that impact my ability to go socialize with my friends and yeah. like feel comfortable like at a party? And, you know, the ability to, like, eat a slice of birthday cake for my birthday, like, that doesn't get unpacked at all. Yeah. And also the, uh, this idea that, like, if health is 
defined, like you said, narrowly as the absence of disease, what then happens when disease comes into play, right? Like then uh, what does that mean? You failed and then we give up? Like all these other things that you're talking about are equally important. And, you know, I think when the disease does come into the picture, something I'm seeing on social media, at least with some really prominent influencers who are now kind of blogging about their Lyme journeys or their adrenal fatigue is that they they really just focus all of their entire being on the disease. And like it's the recommending infrared sauna treatments and the medical medium green juice protocols. And there are just like these laundry lists of things that they tell you that need to be done. And, you know, granted, they're not always being prescriptive because I think that in order to protect their brands and liability on social media, people have gotten smart about the fact that they just say, oh, I'm just sharing my experience. But when people are chronically ill, they are desperate. And I think that makes these communities so vulnerable to predatory, you know, multi-level marketing companies that say, you know, you need all of these essential oils, you know, just use eucalyptus oil, don't use vapes rub, you know, you get all of these just there, there's so much branding and selling on social media and it completely preys on sick people under the guise of like, let's all just get well together. Like we're warriors, we're autoimmune warriors, but I'm going to sell you like this $90 beach body kit and ask you to become an independent distributor because it's totally radically improved my health. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, that is really, really, really fucked up. And it's, it's everywhere on social media. Yeah. I mean, it's, I see a lot of tie-ins with this in diet culture too, again, of the like individual, you know, if it doesn't work for you, then there's something wrong with you as opposed to no diets don't work. Right. So like similarly with wellness stuff, it's like, well, like this green juice thing worked for me to cure this thing. So if it didn't work for you, like something's wrong with you. It's like, "Mm, no, (laughs) I'm just letting you know. And like, you know, keto is the big thing with type one diabetes. Like you have some people who are just like completely obsessed with keto and it works for them. I mean, it works scientifically. Like if you restrict your carbs, you use less insulin. But I think baseline with all of this stuff, all of these interventions, all of these things that people promote, you have to look at the risks versus the benefits. What are the risks to your mental health, your financial health, you know, your emotional stability with the benefits of, you know, having a lower A1C? I would rather my A1C be at a fucking like 6%, which is still great. Instead of, you know, you have people now who want like non-diabetic A1Cs. They want their their A1Cs in like the low fives or like the fours. And it becomes this kind of bragging right online. Like, oh yeah, like I have this non-diabetic A1C or like I my di- my diabetes has been this tightly controlled for X, Y amount of years. And it's just like, but are you like fulfilled? Like, do you? Do you like lose your shit if you go to a birthday party and somebody tries to give you a piece of cake? Like the story just isn't complete there. It just seems like really, really shallow. And I've, I've been there and I I tell people, especially in the context of diet culture, like I've tried all of the shit and it hasn't made me happier and it hasn't made me healthier. Sure. My blood sugars were a little lower, but like big picture, like I was a fucking miserable bitch. Like, (laughs) I was not fun to be around. Yeah. I mean, and that's relevant too, which makes me want to ask you, you know, you mentioned that question um, that you got in your program of like everyone defining what is health, right? And then looking at, you know, World Health Organization. So like, 
for you getting as specific as possible, like when you think for yourself, like what is health for you? Like, how do you think about that? And I mean, it's going to sound so cliche, but like really just balance, you know, like balance is health for me. Like I totally think it's just acceptable and human to pursue things, all things in balance and like things that feel sustainable. I think balance and sustainability are the biggest things for me. And I think from a background of public health, when people are kind of, you know, evangelizing some of these approaches to health that they take or these diets or, you know, like keto, intermittent fasting, um, AIP, all of this shit. Like if people are only telling me the good parts of it, you know, I become skeptical and, you know, when I'm, when I'm having conversations about the benefits that they see and I say something like, oh, you know, but like, uh, would a cookie be okay? Like wh- what happens if you have a cookie? And then there's this conversation about, well, like if you do that, then this, then that, and like, there's no restraint and blah, blah, blah. And it's just like operating in extremes. It's always, you find the people who invan- evangelize this stuff always operate in extremes. They never say like, oh yeah, you can have just like carbs, you know, you can just have a cookie and like, it's fine. Just, you know, also eat vegetables. It's like, no, like if you eat a cookie, then you'll eat that and then you'll eat that. And then it'll just be, you'll fall off. That's the language of falling off the wagon and all of this stuff. And I'm like, what if it doesn't have to be that extreme? What if there was just balance and like grace and, you know, self-acceptance? I think that's been huge for me in therapy. It's just acceptance and commitment therapy, just like accepting things, you know, like, Things don't have any value to them inherently. We place value on things. We place morality on things. That's us. That's on us. A cookie has no value. You know, that's me assigning that cookie that power. Yeah. I mean, and even taking it outside of the realm of like specific disease or chronic illness, like I think this might be kind of a, a small, silly example, but the way that we internalize kind of the blaming of like health and wellness culture, like I noticed the last time that I had some kind of like random flu, right? It was like just like a thing that was going around and like picking up on my self-talk of like, oh my God, what did I do wrong? Right? Like how, like if I would have only this, this or this, I wouldn't have gotten sick. And like, I, I remember something that you said recently, I think it was when you saw your acupuncturist yeah. uh, at the, who posed the question to you, what if you didn't have to blame yourself for getting sick? What if it isn't anything that you did. And that like really caught me. It like, I I deal with this a lot too, with like my mental illness. I'm like, oh, right. What if I don't have to blame myself for this? And I think I need that reminder like over and over again. I don't know that maybe I will reach like some pinnacle point where I don't need that reminder anymore, which would be amazing. But Mm -hmm. that it's, I don't know, that was like very comforting for me to step back and be like, oh, right. Like, what if I actually don't have to go down this like self-flagellation hole? Can you imagine like just the output that could come into existence or like the things that we could do for ourselves if we shifted that energy away from blame and stigma and shame towards just, you know, cultivating lives that we felt proud of and fulfilled by. Like, yeah, with the blaming culture, when I got sick with type 1 diabetes, like I totally was in the ICU, even though type 1 diabetes does not have any evidence-based kind of just like definite causes to date. I was just like, God, I ate a fucking ton of clementines. Like it must've been all those clementines. Like they were so, I love clementines and like every winter season I eat so many of them. And I just remember getting sick before I had any education. I was like, I must've done this. And 
recently I got diagnosed with like acid reflux. I've been really sick lately and I was really unwell for about two weeks there. And my voice has still been a bit hoarse. I've been coughing still, but I ate a lot of clementines again. And I totally was in my acupuncturist office and I was totally just like, you know, maybe I shouldn't have been eating that many. Maybe I should have been doing this. Like we go to sleep right after we eat dinner. And it's just rattling off all of these things that I should not have done. And it's just like, how in this moment does that serve me? It does not serve or benefit me at all. But again, that's kind of like the messaging behind wellness culture is like, you have to find the thing you do bad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm interested in hearing, um, I think the when we're talking about wellness culture or just like health in general, the idea of self-care, right, like comes into play mm-hmm. and is talked about a lot and it's like very buzzwordy. And I've been thinking about um, the sort of like Instagrammable self-care like versus like a, like some of the things that I think of as like ways to care for myself. You know, a thing that comes up a lot is one of the best ways for me to care for myself is to be honest with myself, which maybe mm-hmm. that sounds silly, but like that's like telling myself the truth is like part of my self-care. And so I'm interested for you when you think about self-care, the kind of maybe unsexy or like not as aesthetically pleasing version of what that looks like for you personally? Yeah, for me, you know, it's been, I have kind of these like pillars of care for myself and that includes like financial literacy and management. Um, It includes my chronic illness management. So that's like getting two labs, like getting, I got 10 vials of blood drawn the other week. Like really just unpleasant, unfun shit that you don't want to do. I have, you know, like therapy, it's setting boundaries with people, like having those like really shitty conversations instead of just kind of evading people. Like I feel like there's so much buzzwordiness around like eliminate toxic people from your life. Like toxic people are ruining your life. Um, Like Marie Kondo, tidy up out all the toxic people in your life. And I have a real problem with that. You know, it's not people being toxic onto you in most circumstances, you know, barring situations of abuse and the really kind of just severe instances, you know, it's a lot of times I think something that can be boiled down to boundary setting because people, you know, they can't always know what your boundaries are at every moment because they change their dynamic and I found a, a lot of my self-care is around communicating openly to people. Like I am very open on my social media about my mental health, about my struggles with anxiety, about my diabetes management. And I'm just as open to my employer. Like my team knows that I have type one diabetes. They hear my devices go off. Um, I've mentioned if I've had to, you know, start going to therapy more frequently and working around my schedule that way. And just giving people the, you know, the bare minimum information they need to know where I'm at so that I can operate and take care of myself. I think Mm -hmm. that's huge for me. And it's not sexy. It's not fun. It's not really Instagrammable. You can't really like capture like, oh yeah, I just told, you know, my grad school advisor that I'm depressed and I don't want to work on the project that she's been asking me to do. That sucks. Mm-hmm. I think I took a picture like that and I was like, I had just finished crying. You know, it's, it's the unfun stuff, but it's the stuff that really preserves your mental health in the long run. Yeah. I mean, I feel like there's like a thematic echo between this and what you were talking about, about hiking of like figuring out what it is that you need and then being willing to give that to yourself. Like self-care is very similar. Oh, totally. And it's done in a way that 
I think should be sustainable. Like I, I try to share these things with people that I care about and I want in my life. Like I want to have a positive experience with people so that we can continue supporting each other. Um, I want to set myself up financially in a way that feels sustainable and allows me to meet the goals that I have. I'm looking at self-care from this lens of like taking care of my future self and like parenting myself, really doing the shit that I don't really want to do, but would really benefit from if I just took that five minutes to set up my pin, you know, like it's that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that perspective of like thinking of self-care of like taking care of your future self. Right. Because I do think a lot of the language around self-care is like in the moment indulgence, which also has a place and is awesome. I'm all into pleasure yeah. and indulgence, but it's again, this unsexy, like, well, if I do this, then, you know, that removes X, Y, and Z like stress from the future. And I also, I just, it came to me now and something I've been thinking about self-care is obviously care for the self, but I, I also like to start thinking about self-care and the the context of community and taking care of my community so that my community can kind of come full circle and take care of me. Um, And I do that through volunteering. I find that that's really something that's important to me. And I I think I'm really fortunate in being in a field that allows me to feel some degree of fulfillment that I'm like giving, you know, giving back or doing something that's like net good at the end of the day, especially in this political climate, you know, where everything you're just being hit with these like demoralizing news headlines like daily and hourly but like I feel like turning back around when you have the bandwidth and putting output back into your community I think is really really um enriching and does amazing things for your mental health and your sense of like value that you have for sure Mm -hmm. yeah I love that so changing topics um, for a minute. One of the things that I know that you're passionate about is a commitment to a low waste lifestyle. And I'd love for you to tell the origin story of how you became interested in that. Yeah. um, So basically I just got sick. I never really thought about waste until I got diagnosed with type one diabetes, um, which most people would not know is a very kind of waste intensive disease. You have a lot of medical waste. So I, at any given moment of a week, go through several, I use a a tubeless insulin pump called an Omnipod, um, but I go through several plastic cartridges that hold insulin every three days. I have a continuous glucose monitor, which is a sensor that I inject under my skin that reads my blood sugars. And I have lots of plastic waste from that. And I think I was just, you know, I just graduated in 2014 and gotten sick. And then I applied for grad school in 2015 and began grad school in 2015 that fall. And I kind of came across the zero waste hashtag on Instagram and just began taking stock of the amount of waste that I generated. Um, And it really wasn't anything more than that. I was just like, well, I feel like I kind of have to balance again, returning to this idea of balance in my kind of self-care paradigm, I kind of have to balance what I'm perceiving to be this thing that has a lot of negative impact on my kind of conscious, which is the amount of waste I'm producing with what it means to constantly know that I'm going to have to have this waste to live. Mm -hmm. So then once you started thinking about that and were more conscious of that, I'd love to hear some specifics of like either changes you made initially or things that you're doing now, um, with, especially with things like 
low waste. Or, I mean, like you said, the hashtag zero race, like anything that has, uh, you know, like a big movement, I'm always interested in it getting like more specific for like what works for you. Um, so for me, what it looks like to tangibly take steps towards zero waste and what I kind of reframed as like a, a low waste lifestyle was to do it from a really kind of iterative, iterative standpoint. Um, I think when you're talking about zero waste, the movement, and you look on social media, it's a movement that looks very white. It looks very affluent. It looks like if you look at the zero waste hashtag, there are, you know, like the keep cup, get your clean canteen, get your bamboo utensils. Like it's a lot of, um, ironically people encouraging you to buy things to live a more low waste lifestyle instead of making do with what you have. So I think that was my first kind of iteration was I, you know, I went out and bought a few things. I don't drink coffee. I don't really use some of the things that are like kind of the staples, like a little mug that people take everywhere. Um, I didn't get a fancy water bottle. I just got like a plastic Nalgene from REI. Um, but I did end up buying stuff like a safety razor, a menstrual cup, which is one of the things that, you know, I love most. And that was a really awesome transition that I made. So I would say that was like my first step of reducing my waste was buying things, unfortunately. And then I kind of learned more about the low waste kind of philosophy and just like circular economies and going out into my communities a bit more. And I started doing free things, which is what I would like to talk about if people are interested, um, doing things like trash auditing. So we actually don't have a trash can in our apartment and we haven't had one for about two years um, and when we were in Chicago and we had one, um, we had one of those like very tiny, like bathroom trash cans, um, as our main trash can. And what we did was we just kind of looked at what our trash was coming from and just made changes from there. So if we had, like, I had a bunch of those like cotton rounds, um, to take off my makeup and wash my face and I had like that going in the trash can all the time, or I had tampons going in the trash can all the time. So I was just looking into alternatives so that I could slowly start getting those things out of my trash can. So that's like a completely free thing that you can do is trash auditing and just seeing if instead of three times ordering things out in plastic takeout containers a week, you know, you did two times and then the third time you like go eat at the restaurant. Um, but I, I do think that a lot of it is kind of really about access and, you know, moving to the Bay Area, that's been like one of the greenest places that you could possibly move, like anywhere on the on the West Coast, really. We have got municipal composting and, you know, stores really do a great job of keeping like the reusable produce bags at the bulk sections and it's just all very accessible. Um, and it's been built into, into the infrastructure here, which is again, kind of a public health thing. They've set people up to have access to these tools, but I would say living in Chicago, that definitely didn't feel as much as the case because Chicago, you have to kind of pay for composting services and seek those things out. They're not just kind of built into the landscape so much. So I, I really just kind of looked into the things I was most interested in adopting and then moved, paid $10,000 to move across the country and got all of these things at my fingertips and pay, you know, crazy amounts for rent so that I have composting. And, you know, it, it, it's, 
it takes a lot of like self-reflection and like seeing why these things feel a lot easier than they were at some point. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think uh, sort of what's coming out between the lines of what you're saying too is this idea that it doesn't have to be all or nothing, which I think goes back to like not just talking about zero waste, but also when we were talking about wellness culture, right? It's like mm-hmm. either you do these like 10,000 things like or you're the worst, you know? And I think this even the idea, like you said, like zero waste, re- reframing that as like a low waste lifestyle, looking at what that is for you. Like I think, uh, I mean, one of the things that I have been in therapy for for a while or that I continue to work on is this sort of destructive all or nothing thought patterns, which I think is pretty common. Oh, totally. I'm definitely yeah, not the I'm only one of you. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, with that, it's really easy to be like, well, I'm ne- I'm never going to be zero waste. So what's the point, right? And having to stop and be like, okay, that's not true. And what you just said about like doing a trash audit, that's something that sounds super interesting and really easy to do. And this idea of like just pay attention, right? Like, and again, like tell yourself the truth, like notice what's, what's there and then experiment and iterate. Like if there's a lot of trash coming from, you know, drinking a lot of LaCroix, for example, for me, okay, (laughs) we got a soda stream, which again involves like spending money, sure. And so there's other things to do too, but just like paying attention and being like, okay, yeah, sure. Reduction and, you know, I don't know, like moving in that direction, I think is, is always worthwhile. And I think this is true in lots of different areas, not just the example of like low waste. It's like you can make steps. It doesn't have to be all or nothing. Absolutely. And prioritize what is meaningful for you. Like I, we cook a lot in our household. So like compost was huge because we noticed in Chicago, most of our trash was just food scraps. And, you know, now we have even less, we, what we do since we don't have a trash can is that when we do get takeout or if we do go to the dentist or something and they give us like a plastic bag, we just have that on the counter or the back door is our trash bag for the two weeks that we fill it for. Um, and like our community has set up so that our garbage cans are quite a lot smaller than our compost bins. So we just, you know, fill up this tiny trash can with this tiny bag of trash and it just so happens to work for us, but we still create trash. Like you're saying, we just create less of it and we just prioritize the things that we know that we engage with most often. So like we don't have paper towels, we don't have trash bags, we don't have um, a lot of the single use kind of stuff that we used to rely on. Um, And it's been fun, I think, to make this kind of transition. And, you know, we also primarily eat vegan, um, though I don't identify with the vegan movement at all. We we take steps to make it fun. So we just learn new recipes or like we took a bread making class so that we can make our own bread instead of buying bread that was wrapped in plastic. Um, and I think, again, those are, those are things that our privileges afforded to us, but in any capacity, you could exchange recipes or do potlucks or just make these changes fun for you. Don't make it something that seems like it could be shame or stigma inducing um, because I think anything done from a place of shame or fear or guilt or like I'm bad, I'm doing this to, you know, repent for my bad trash making behaviors. I don't think that that leads people down a successful route at all. Yeah. And I think that's true with everything. And it's it's funny, like as we're having this conversation, like I think there's a lot of this is like, oh, duh, you know, like make it fun. It doesn't have to be all or nothing. And like these things like sort of sound cliche and also like they're cliche for a reason. Like this, this is where we get stuck, right? And like over and oh, over yeah. again in different ways. And so just that reminder of like, 
yeah, shaming yourself into making change like never works in the long term, right? And so it's like, what if this were easy? What if this were fun? And just approaching it that way. And like you said, starting with whatever's most meaningful for you and what works with your lifestyle and what it is that you have access to. And yeah, no, I love that. Um, specific question um, in, on this topic before we start to wrap up. Something, you know, with sort of long distance backpacking too and having a lot of like individually wrapped food or either like repackaging like bulk things into mm-hmm. like Ziplocs and that type of stuff that I've I, I like very conscious of like oh huh there's like a lot of trash being produced here to be honest probably less resources than I'm using when I'm just at home and driving and doing other things so I guess yes. there's an argument to be made there but have you found any like lower waste I don't know like substitutions or things that you do with that you know I think backpacking is one of those areas where we're still all just like, what the fuck do we do with all of this plastic? Um, And I think with me even more so and kind of like compounding diabetes with anxiety and like you alluded to earlier, the all or nothing thinking and just the perfectionism because I think it's so easy, especially with backpacking to go down the road of wanting everything to be optimized and everything to be most efficient and like, I found myself going down that rabbit hole because, you know, I, I tried, I dehydrated, I cooked all of our food, um, all of my food, sorry. It was all vegan. It was all, you know, really nutrient dense food that I dehydrated and packed into little Ziploc baggies. But after a certain point, you know, as I was preparing my, my meals and my gear, Mason and like my therapist kind of checked in with me. Mason is my long-term partner. Um, And they were just like, what if you didn't have to put so much pressure on yourself? Um, What if it's okay to just use like two boxes of Ziploc bags? Because those two boxes are probably what you would have used like in your other lifetime, like in the course of a month, you know, like I, I think, again, checking in with yourself and making sure that you're doing things from a place of like compassion and fun and, you know, obviously be economical and be kind of responsible with the amount of food that you produce. But I I think, especially if you have these other kind of variables in the equation that impact your mental health, like disease management, I don't think it's necessarily productive to put that energy towards searching for the best, most perfect alternative. I, I try to get gear that's from ethical companies um, and cottage companies that are making things in the United States. And even that I think is like a huge, a huge step in the right direction, even if I'm not using, you know, like silicone reusable baggies. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, and that, that I I figured probably that was what you're going to say, but if you knew something that I didn't know, I wanted to know it. But. I'm so curious though, because, you know, I'm shocked that we haven't gotten there yet. Yeah, I mean, and but also it depends because like the shorter the trip, I think the easier it is to do that. But when you're if you're going to be out for like this trip that I'm taking is going to be about six weeks, right? That I'm doing mailed resupplies. Like there really isn't an option for reusable things because right, like it's not. And yeah, so it's. But I I like what you're talking about about not being perfectionistic. It's like paying attention where you can pay attention. And this is really on my mind, and I'm sure I will be like pinging you with questions um, (laughs) because you know, in when I get back from the hike in May is when I'm moving into my van full time and talk about. 
about so excited for that. Right. I mean, same and also nervous, but like, <laughs> I, like not really having a trash can, like not, you know, not being able to order stuff online, really. Like there's just a lot of lifestyle shifts that I haven't really heard people talk about much, like in the van life community. And so like, yes, going lower waste from just like a practical standpoint is going to be something that I think about. So you yeah, have a huge opportunity there for kind of creating a more like logistical discussion, centered discussion around van living and what it means to like have a footprint as somebody living in a van. Cause yeah. I, you're right. I, I can't, I'm thinking of all the kind of van lifers that I follow on social media and you really only see people parked in front of, you know, the Alabama Hills and their little like puffy looking super happy. That's what I see a lot of. Yeah. Same. I mean, it's something that I'm thinking and now I guess that I'm saying it publicly, I probably will do it. So I mentioned before that I do daily posts from my hikes. Um, I'm going to do daily posts the first 30 days of living in the van, just, I mean, because it's such a huge transition. Like I want to kind of like nudge myself into like journaling about this, making notes about it, like paying attention to this type of stuff. So yeah, I'm interested to see how that goes. I think that's a good place to start to wrap up. Um, the way that we end these conversations is with a series of community questions. So mm -hmm. the folks in the Patreon community put forward, um, in this case, it's nine questions and all eight guests this season are answering the same nine questions. If you're down to answer nine random questions. Oh, definitely. What's something that you've gotten better at over the past year? I think I've gotten better at showing myself grace and being less um, critical of myself. Like I was alluding to earlier with just the perfectionist tendencies of anxiety and asking myself either preparing for a through hike or, you know, being at work, like, why didn't I do this perfectly? Or like, why didn't I execute this in this perfect way, you know, I think I'm getting better at checking that voice. Um, and that's something that's really improved my mental health. Yeah. What's one thing that you've found challenging lately that you've been struggling with? So having said that, I think I'm still struggling with the conversations I have with myself surrounding my health. Um, and when my health has, um, declined or I have flare ups, I still, have this kind of looping. Why, why is this happening? Why did I do this? What could I be doing better? Um, kind of narrative that I go through. So, um, that's been really challenging for me, but I am aware of it. So in that degree, I sense a lot of progress still. Um, but it, it's hard, it's hard to sit with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What's one thing that you love to splurge on when you can? Ooh, um, let's see. I really like buying plants. And recently I went to a Korean spa for the first time and spent like a hundred dollars getting like a full body exfoliation scrub and massage and, you know, saunas and the whole thing. So I think that's something I'm going to be splurging on with more, um, regularity. Cause it was really, really amazing. Yeah. And I remember when you were talking about that on Instagram saying that you usually have a really hard time spending money on non-essentials and having to kind of yes. like dig into that a little bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Tell me about a time when you failed at something. It could be big or small, but just a quick story of failure. Let's see. I will, I will, I guess, cite my relationship. Um, Mason and I have been together for seven years. Um, but when I graduated undergrad, we actually stopped dating and, um, we had lived together at that point for a year and we moved out and it was horrible and I cried and, you know, it was just this really, really 
sad chapter for us. And it felt very much like a failure. And our families were all asking, you know, like, what happened? And it felt very public and sad. Um, and there's like a splitting of things um, that's really hard. But we both took that time to really work on ourselves. And, you know, I went to school and got therapy and we came back together and we're living together now. And things are just really, 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 really balanced and open and great now. So that was a failure that kind of felt like this process of dying and then rebirthing. And it's, it's been great for me. Yeah. When you feel stuck, what's one thing that you know helps you to keep moving forward? Um, I think that I kind of just take stock of my journey. I will kind of like mentally do a timeline of where I was and where I am now. Um, I've kind of struggled with anxiety and depression pretty much my whole adolescence through early adulthood. Um, I grew up with a lot of family trauma and conflict and dysfunction. And I kind of just will sit down and write down the things that I've done since being out on my own. And it just blows my mind. And you can't look at lists like that and like see the things that you've done and feel like you couldn't do them 10 times over. Um, it's really empowering. Um, even if it can be hard sometimes. Yeah. I love that. Even like, here's a list of stuff I survived or hard things that I went through or Mm -hmm. yeah, anything in that I think is lovely. What's something that feels really important to you right now? Maybe a goal or intention, or if that's not really your thing, something that you're spending conscious time and energy on that feels important? I feel really, really passionately about just protecting um, our land and kind of fostering conversations around the land that we so fortunately are able to access and share and learn about the history of. Um, So I'm going to, I was supposed to have started um, my time as a wildlife docent at Point Reyes National Seashore, um, where I would be educating about the elephant seals that migrate to the coast and give birth to their pups and the whole life cycle. I was supposed to start that, but with the government shutdown, I've not been able to go to any of the shifts yet because the park service is not co- currently operational fully there, but I'm super passionate about that and just asking people what they know and just having conversations from there. Yeah. The next question is about books, which two or three books, any type of book, any genre, would you say have either had the biggest impact on you or that you find yourself recommending or rereading most often? Oh, I love this one because I talked with my friend Gina and Murhawa about this a lot. I fucking love Wild by Cheryl Strayed. And I feel like that's such a taboo thing to say as a woman hiker um, because of the assholes in the hiking community. But I really resonate with Cheryl Strayed um, and her upbringing because I've had similar notes of domestic abuse and violence in my household. And I remember learning about that story and just like rolling my eyes. I'm like, who cares about this white woman who's hiking this trail? Like, fuck, <laughs> like this sounds so stupid. And then I watched the film adaptation before reading the book and I was just crying the whole movie because it just hit me so hard. So when I'm having a really kind of difficult time, especially around the holidays for me, typically I always reread Wild because I really admire Cheryl Strait's um, storytelling around her trauma. I really like the book Glass Castle by Jeanette Walls for much of the same reasons. It's a very kind of similar upbringing that I had. And it's something that I read in high school when I was going through a lot of stuff with my family and just was like completely blown away by. I was like, how can somebody just like transform all of this pain into 
opportunity and stability. Um, so that's a book I revisit a lot. And then I think the third would be a book called Blankets by Craig Thompson. It's a graphic novel. And one of my friends gave it to me for a white elephant in high school. And it again, there are some pretty painful elements to the story, but it was just so, so beautifully illustrated and articulated. And I reread it recently and I reread it semi-regularly every couple of years. Um, but I reread it re recently enough that it really just kind of impacted me again. Um, so I really love that one. I'll have to check that one out. I also thought that Glass Castle was a really beautiful book. And I'm a huge Cheryl Strayed fan. It's funny, not really wild as much, but I've read Tiny Beautiful Things, like, I mean, more times than I could even tell you. Is that, I keep picking it up. I always pick it up when I'm at the bookstore, um, but I listen to the podcast so much that I was unsure if it would just kind of be iterations of the podcast, but um, I, I mean, love her writing so much. Well, it's, it's a collection of her Dear Sugar columns, right? right? So like, it's different from the podcast in that, you know, there's not a another person's like co-hosting voice, right? There's not right. a, you know, that type of stuff. I mean, I love it. I love it so much. I feel like she's my, not the only one, but like my role model of like what it is to tell the truth, like sort of for the sake of telling the truth, not necessarily because it's going to be well-received. Like there's, Absolutely. yeah, Absolutely. like some yeah. passages that I, I mean, I reread it again, like in my tent at night on my Kindle app when I was on trail last time that I just feel like I've highlighted so many times that like, it's that like, we know what truth is when we hear it, right? That like kind of hair standing up on your arms type of thing. And so I mean, if you're a fan of hers in general, I, yeah, I think you would love it. I'm going to pick it up and buy it this time then. So good. Yeah. So the last question, if you could leave our community, the listeners, with one call to action, what would it be? Maybe a question to ask themselves or a small action to take? Um, I would just encourage people to, to ask questions and see where people are at. Um, and this is applicable to our conversation earlier around illness and chronic illness and asking people like just how they're doing, um, instead of making assumptions. Um, I think in this political climate, asking people just where they're at around certain topics, I think, you know, in my role as a docent, hopefully when that starts, just asking people what their knowledge is of the land and of the animals that they're learning about, just giving people that opportunity to be able to share where they're at. I think, it's so easy now, especially with social media, we see glimpses of each other online and we think we know everything about people and their points of views. And there's just so much more that doesn't get shared. Um, so I think just the act of giving people space and asking people where they're at is huge. Um, and I hope that that's something that I do that just continues to make people feel empowered to show up, even if it's not the way I would show up and just like start dialogues. I think that is going to be super important moving forward, especially into this next election. Yeah. So the last thing that I usually ask is, you know, the best place for people to find you and say hi online, if you have a favorite way to connect with new folks, but I know that you're pretty private online. So is there a way that you would like to answer that question? Yeah. Um, so I think what's been really fun for me is that I've started an online presence and kept myself pretty um, tapered off to people I just know in real life or mutual friends of friends. But there are organizations that I um, participate with and get active with that I think are really meaningful. And I try to participate in the community that way. Um, so I really like the organization Beyond Type 1. Um, it's a nonprofit organization, the one that I spoke for at a panel in 2018. And they they focus a lot on diabetes education and awareness. And another project that I specifically just want to point out that's happening right now is with an organization, an Instagram account called um, You're Just My Type. 
And um, it's run by a woman named Laura who has type one diabetes and she features other diabetics. She does photo shoots with them and gets their stories across the country. And right now um, she recently this weekend featured something with the Liberate Insulin Project where they went to Mexico to buy insulin over the counter for Americans who cannot buy insulin because it is so expensive and cost prohibitive in the United States. So you can actually fly down to Mexico and buy it without a prescription over the counter or Canada for $14 US dollars or pesos or whatever you have. And it is like a tenth of the price of what it costs to get insulin as a US citizen with our insurance system. Um, so Laura uh, at You're Just My Type and um, with the organization liberateinsulin.com is the website. They have been doing a feature with NBC to showcase how um, cost prohibitive insulin is and what they're doing to raise awareness about this issue. So hopefully these pharmaceutical companies make it more accessible. Um, so I would keep your eye out on those organizations because they have a lot of cool work coming up. I love that. I will put links to both of those and everything else we talked about in the show notes. Kirby, thank you so much. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for being part of the Real Talk Radio family. Speaking of the Real Talk Radio family, I want to give a huge shout out to Adam Day, my producer and sound engineer. Adam created the music for this show, and he makes everything work and flow and sound way better than I ever could on my own. You can find him and his music and his sound editing work at adamday.net. And as I said way back at the top of the episode, this is a 100% listener-supported show. The show is made possible by awesome people like Kirsten. Hi, Kirsten. Hey, Nicole. So we're going to do a fun little round of rapid-fire questions if you're ready. Yes, I'm ready. All right. What are you totally obsessed with right now? So this is pretty random, and I'm um, it's a new obsession for me. Um, I recently got into metalsmithing. Um, so I took a jewelry making class years ago. I used to be really into art in um, high school and early college. And um, I took like a, a soldering jewelry course and it was amazing. I just had this natural talent for it. Um, and it was something that I never did again or pursued because I always thought, um, you know, I wouldn't be able to do that at home because that's something you need like an art studio for, or, you know, all the tools and things like that. It just seemed too complicated. Um, so yeah, several months ago, um, I sort of like, I decided to stop doing and like literally start, um, practicing like not doing. And, um, so in that I found art again, I'm um, just like my natural love of art and everything to do with it. And so, um, in just goofing around with art, I decided, well, why not do this thing and why not just, um, you know, make a little home art studio and buy the tools I need to do. And, um, and yeah, I've been having a blast with it. I'm literally, um, soldering metal, on my kitchen table. <laughs> I love that so much. I love the idea of giving yourself permission to just do something for fun. Like it sounds like so simple. And I think a lot of us struggle with that. And so I love hearing like the tangible ways that you're doing that. Yeah, it's been a blast. I love it. What's one thing that you have been awesome at lately? Go ahead and brag a little bit. Oh man, I think um, I've been 
I've been really good about um, just like what I like have been like saying is that that um, the art of not doing, you know, just like really saying no when it's not something that's going to serve me and doing things purely for fun and not for a paycheck or an outcome or an expectation or things like that. And just really, um, practicing surrendering to life in that way of just letting things happen naturally and not trying to force it so much because I really, um, yeah, I used to, (laughs) well, and it's, you know, it's, uh, art, not a science. And so I'm still practicing it, but I really am, um, you know, coming off of um, a stage in my life where I was trying to overly control everything and trying to fix myself and things like that. And so it's been nice to just come down from that and just kind of surrender it all and start doing some stuff for fun. And so I'm pretty proud of myself that over the last several months, I've been able to do that more in my life. Yeah, it's really well said. What's your go-to song when you need a mood boost? Oh man, lately I've been really into Ryan Adams. And so for sure, anything Ryan Adams, it's just, if I need to decompress, if I need to sing, if I need to dance, if I just need to rock out, it's Ryan Adams. And specifically the song, uh, Nobody Girl, just, I love the guitar in that. And it's just sort of my go-to song right now. It's, um, yeah, but anything by Ryan Adams. I love how quick you had an answer to that question. It makes me happy. <laughs> it's so good. Because um, I was just listening to it today. <laughs> what's one goal that you're working toward right now or something that's important to you? Um, I definitely have several things in 2019 I want to work on. So, um, I mean, just the jewelry making, um, just practicing getting better at that. It's intimidating because I really don't know what I'm doing, but obviously you don't know how to do something until you do it. And so I've just been um, being consistent about doing that. And um, another thing, this is totally random, but um, something I'm working on in 2019 is working the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, So I've been sober for... um, about three and a half years now. And I did not go the route of AA. And it's something that I just started recently. Um, just, I went, you know, to like AA meetings, um, for the first time just recently. And, um, so something in the program is like the 12 steps. And so I, um, not only did I go back for the sense of like community to have like that in real life sober community, but also um, to see what these steps are all about. <laughs> just like sober people talk about like working the steps and things like that. And so, um, yeah, I'm really motivated to actually put effort into seeing what that's all about this year. Um, so I have a sponsor and I'm going to start doing it um, and see where it takes me. That's so interesting to me because I am also someone who did not go um, the AA route. And I don't know that I've ever heard of someone, you know, being sober for years and then going and doing that. And that's, it's so interesting. I'll be interested to talk to you in a couple months and see like what you feel like you're getting from it. Yeah, definitely. So last question, what's one thing that you have recently been wishing that people were more open and honest about? So this one sort of ties into the whole, um, you know, busyness I was talking about and like the, um, intentionally not doing, um, and things like that is, um, I would actually, I would like people to be honest about, um, 
like what they're actually sacrificing in order to meet like their goals or like, you know, the term has been thrown out, like the, like a person's bigger. Yes. You know, like that big thing that like someone wants to do, like, what are they sacrificing in order to get there? Mm -hmm. Is it finances, family relationships, sleep, sanity, like what is involved in the sacrifice to get to that bigger yes. Because, um, like I, several months ago, which sparked the whole like art of not doing for me was, um, I was in a doctorate program and it was my bigger. Yes. I wanted a career change. I, um, was really like motivated. It was a huge yes for me. It was a big decision too, a big financial decision, a big time, energy, just everything went into this decision. And yeah, I was doing really well. I was getting straight A's and I was enjoying um, the content and everything, but it was pushing me over my edge. I literally, like all of my extra time was devoted to this program. And although it was my bigger, yes, it's just like, I was sacrificing my family life, you know, my time with my kids. I was, um, it was a huge financial commitment. Um, I was getting less sleep. I was literally starting to go crazy, you know? So I ultimately decided not to keep pursuing it because, um, the negative was starting to outweigh like the positive of it for me. And I still, I look back on that and I still don't know if it's the right decision Mm -hmm. because it's like the sacrificing of the bigger yes, you know? And so, yeah, that's just why I'm curious, like uh, people who are actually like doing these huge things with their lives and like, you know, changing careers and starting a business and things like that. What is involved in that? (laughs) Because I certainly couldn't do it um, without basically ignoring my children and not ever dating again. (laughs) Like, so what um, goes into that and, and ultimately is it worth it? You know? Um, Yeah. So that's something I'm interested in. Yeah. I mean, uh, I feel like that could be a whole like separate long conversation too. I feel really grateful that you shared even that like small part of your story because yeah, I agree. I think that there's always a, you know, some people like the word sacrifice, some people don't, but there's always like a cost of admission right, for doing something. And it's like, I think it's really seen as super sexy to like go all in and like, you know, like you said, like put it on the line, sacrifice everything. Right. And, and it's not always worth it and like not being worth it I think it's it's relatively easy to walk away from something that's good but not great. But what do you do in the situation where like – or I mean it's it's easier to walk away from something that's terrible than it is from something that's good but not great. Like you obviously wanted that, but the trade-offs weren't worth it. So then like what do you do? Yeah, I I, I have no wisdom in this at all, but I, <laughs> I agree with you that I wish it's something that people were more honest about for sure. Yeah. So you are a member of our Patreon support squad, which means that you are one of the people that listeners can thank for making this podcast possible since you make a powerful reoccurring pledge that helps to fund the costs of producing the show and paying the guests each season, for which I'm super grateful. And I would love for you to share two things. First, why you decided to support the show, and then your favorite thing, either your favorite one of the bonuses or your favorite thing about being in the community, whatever you want to share. Okay, so... I decided to support your show because I just, I really like you. <laughs> I like, I want <laughs> to support people. That's a delightful thing to say. Like. That's amazing. <laughs> and honestly, out of um, all the podcasts out there, and I, I have really narrowed it down to only my top few. Um, lately, I only have a few that I consistent, consistently listen to, and you're one of them. And um, 
yeah, just really like you as a human being. And when you um, put this concept out there about, um, you know, keeping the show going through the listeners, then I mean, hell yeah, you know, it wasn't like anything other than I want to support you in whatever way I can. Um, and then what I enjoy about um, the like extra content, I, of course, love your Friday emails. They're super truthful. I feel like I'm a part of your life in some sort of like, you know, weird, creepy outsider sort of way. <laughs> you know? It's not creepy um, at all. Yeah, Continue. No. <laughs> yeah. And um, I like following your story and um, uh, definitely like so relatable, like all the time. And also, I really like your monthly check-ins with your friend, Julia, um, the, you know, the little monthly, um, like what's the month been like and are you reaching your goals, things like that, and um, just the check-ins. I think that's really cool, and um, I like hearing your conversations with her. Yeah, I love recording those episodes with her so much, and, and you know, I'm not surprised that other people love her too because she's the best. Um, do you want to share where you live and uh, maybe a social media link if people want to say hi? Sure. I live in Dana Point, California, and um, I'm really only on Instagram, and it's just my name, I'm Kirsten Zell. K-I-R-S-T-E-N-Z-E-L-L. Perfect. And to everyone listening, if you love the podcast, if you want to help keep it going, if you want over 40 hours of bonus content, plus lots of other fun opportunities and extras, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more for each eight-episode season. I can't tell you how much your support means to me, and it'll be so much fun to get to know you better after you've joined our community. Perhaps we can even record a future outro together like this one. So until next time, here's a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can, and no matter what, we're in this together. 